Well, let's stand together as we come now to Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at uh, chapter, uh, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 9, but uh, we're looking at the, uh, the section from chapter 7 to 9, though I won't read that whole section. Let's pray as we come to the Bible now. Father, help us to hear your word, to be changed by it. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work to your great glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Ecclesiastes 9, and beginning at verse 13, I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 18. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Do please sit down. As we come to this strange book, Ecclesiastes, the section I've just read out reminds me immediately of the poet who said, the best laid plans of mice and men go off to stray. And that's so true, isn't it? Daily life gives evidence of the destruction reaped by circumstance as well as evil intention. It's certainly the case that strategic planning from very smart people can invigorate an economy or defend a city, but nonetheless there's no telling when the next Wall Street crash or 9-11 will occur. And in our human wisdom, we are liable to be forgotten if right or sorry if wrong. This is the sequence of ideas that this little parable at the end of chapters 7 to 9 introduces for us. You can imagine a small city against a powerful king. You can see the big invading army, the siege works, and then compare all that with the relatively pitiful resources of the small hamlet. And then we listen to the shrewd counsel of a, of a poor man, a lowly individual. And perhaps that advice is to cut a deal and find a compromise. And then the story, the movie, fast tracks to the future. And you see the poor wise man, still poor, and now also forgotten. And by contrast, the city is basking in its trading relations with that local superpower who wanted to destroy it, but blissfully ignorant of whom it has to be grateful. And you and I know that such scenes as that play themselves out frequently in human life. That's why, for instance, we have copyright laws or intellectual property lawyers and patents. What's more, as this little ending to these chapters goes on to summarize, great ideas and plans can be terminally spoilt by just one destructive personality. One sinner destroys much good. A fly in the ointment. Think of all those corporate scandals 
Now, in a way, Ecclesiastes is not saying anything in these chapters that he has not already said before. As we've seen, Ecclesiastes' basic message is that life under the sun, that is the secular life without real relational engagement with God, that life is vanity, meaningless, in Hebrew, chebel, it's a vapor, it's going nowhere, a story told by idiots signifying nothing. And Ecclesiastes, what is he doing? What he's trying to get us to see the secular life for what it truly is. Attractive, for sure, busy, certainly, perhaps alluring, but still essentially pointless. And then having elucidated these principles, he's, uh, he's uh, applying them, as we saw last week, also even to the sphere of worship, human worship. And I, I say human for in the temple synagogue worship, he observed, he saw nothing but a, a secularized, human-level worship. And we saw how relevant that was to the contemporary church's temptation to dumb God down to the human level, to make Him tame, not real, not present, not awesome, not able to step out of the page and speak. But now, instead of immediately introducing a new subject, uh, like the good teacher he is, instead of that, he he begins to drive that same point home now with a series of vivid lessons. And uh, these lessons are summarized by the story at the end of chapters 7 to 9 that we just read out. Scholars actually have struggled to find structure in in this section of Ecclesiastes, but in a way here, the medium is the message and the randomness of the, of the structure is intended to parallel his lesson about the randomness of life without God under the sun. You see, once again, Ecclesiastes is trying to wean us off the lie that this world with its pleasures and rewards is really satisfying and to face the facts about its delusory qualities and so instead... Find our joy and peace and happiness in a spiritual engagement with the awe of God, or as he puts it, the fear of the Lord. He's looking in these chapters in particular at the, the wisdom statements around him, the, 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 the sort of smart deals and the salesman technique. He, he's seeing the way that those are phrased, the sort of corporate logos, if you like, of his time, the the self-improvement seminars. And he scans his eye down the fast career track in the business world or the Ivy League. And then he throws out all those popular proverbial lessons about how to live the good life, the the sort of things that people say today, like work hard, plan ahead. Do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. All those kind of statements, you know. He throws them out, or the equivalent in his day, and then with an almost rueful smile, he suddenly undermines them. Nobody remembered the poor wise man, you see. Wisdom is better, but one sinner destroys it, you see. Politically correct, politically incorrect, suburban utopia, death by suburbia, he says. Think you're smart? He says, think again. First popular smart slogan he undermines 
uh, in his day is perhaps equivalent to the one in our day from Nike. Just do it. Just do it, he asks. Is that really smart? Think again. So if you look at uh, chapter 7 and how this section begins, verse 1, he says a good name is better than precious ointment. And that's familiar. Wise advice of any age to get on with it and make a name for yourself, your reputation. That is, in a way, be the kind of person that the companies compete over to wear their corporate logos on your shirt or have uh, them sponsor your, your um, 501c3 or whatever, whatever it is. And, uh, and so he, he, that kind of advice was familiar to Ecclesiastes' original audience as well. In fact, it's similar to the advice you can find in, in the, the proverbial wisdom of Proverbs, which says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. But while Proverbs continues, and favor is better than silver or gold, Ecclesiastes, when it continues, it suddenly and unexpectedly produces a sting in the tail. Can you see? And the day of death is better than the day of birth. He does that kind of thing frequently in this section. For instance, look at verse 13. Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, the teacher, this enigmatic, provocative dispenser of wisdom says, uh, verse 13, consider the work of God. Uh, That's chapter 7, of course, verse verse 13. Now, consider the work of God. What could be normal to say in church and for the Bible to say? Consider the works of the Lord, his handiwork, how glorious it is. What is man that you are mindful of him? The, 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 you've set the stars in the place. You've made, made him a little lower than the, the angels, etc., etc. But here, consider the work of God, and then he carries on. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You, you wouldn't expect to find that in the Bible, would you? You see, Ecclesiastes will not let us get out of church with just a sort of God-out-there idea of the nominal believer. That doesn't help, he's saying. We need the real God, the God who is in heaven but who came to earth, the God of the Bible who speaks and shows us his straight paths, not just a matter of, a matter of our cleverness, his wisdom. You see, slogans like Nike's Just Do It are are so successful because they express the standard popular advice to seize the day. Ecclesiastes, however, tells us that try as we might to just do it, all of that is undermined by the inevitable reality of the coffin. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. In fact, if you really want to get whimsical about it, and I do, if you look at verses 1 to 6, they're they're actually, of of, of that chapter, the beginning of the section, they're they're actually almost like a rap. Honestly, you know, I'm not just making it up to sound cool, you know. They really are in their tone as they speak of death's undermining of secular confidence. If you, if, you could, if you could read it in the original, good or tov in Hebrew appears as a sort of rhyming, linking device throughout. It's, it's there where you find the word good, but also where you see the word fine or better. 
And verse 6 in particular is, is sort of crackling with alliteration. That is where the, the, the beginning letter of the word is the same to sort of emphasize alliteration. As it talks about a sort of bone-snapping foolishness of those who ignore death. One translator attempted to render the sort of feeling, the sound of the crackling of thorns under the pot in the actual words like this, the sound of nettles under the kettle, you know. Or you might, if you want to be rap-like, you might say the coffin's coming and it's shutting and then there'll be no more running or something like that. And he's, he's, he's trying to get under our radar screen, our assumptions of, oh, yeah, it's church. Oh, yeah, it's religion. And say, do you really understand what God is about? Who he is. How powerful he is. Do you have any idea what we are talking about when we say, fear God? And do you just trivialize it with slogans, whether in the secular world or the religious world? Just do it. See, he's doing similar things with the idea of death, actually, throughout these chapters. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. There you can see there's a graveside scene, and the wicked are getting eulogized. The wicked are getting eulogized. And, of course, that undermines everything under the sun. Why be moral good? Why try hard? Why just do it? Or look at chapter 9, verse 4. There he puts it memorably, one of those maxims for which this part of Ecclesiastes is well known, as it turns these proverbial ideas on their head. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Think reputation matters, being powerful matters. A living dog is better than a dead lion. So here we are, just do it. Ecclesiastes says, well, soon enough you'll be just done in. Every step towards success is also a step closer to the grave. If you ever saw that movie, Dead Poet Society, you may remember that it made famous the ancient slogan, Seize the Day, which in Latin is Carpe Diem. Ironically, of course, that movie was really all about a suicide. There is no hope in just do it, for we will all be at some point soon just done in. There is no future in Seize the Day, for tomorrow will come. Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to, to, to seize the day. He wants us to seize the divine. Not carpe diem, but carpe deum. Or as he puts it, fear God. Well, the second popular smart slogan he undermines of his day, which is around still in our day and may be equivalent to the well-known Beatles Love is all you need. Love is all you need, he says. Is that really smart? Think again. Now we come to probably the most controversial part of the whole book. So buckle up your seat belts. You look down with me at chapter 7, verse 26, and you scan your eye to the first verse of chapter 8. I think you'll very quickly get a sense of why some have called Ecclesiastes a woman hater or even a misogynist bigot. 
Look at verse 28, for instance. One man among a thousand I found, he says, but a woman, I haven't found a single one of those. You know, but a woman among all those I have not found. You know, it'd be easy to get offended by that kind of thing, wouldn't it? But actually getting offended by that sort of uh, statement is really to miss what he's trying to communicate in his subtle approach to exposing life under the sun to get us to focus on life above the sun. So note with me that it's the men also who get it in the neck. They get criticized too. Verse 29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And given that verse 28 is a a gender uh, distinctive, then verse 29 surely must be men as in males, you see. So the men get criticized as well. Now, you may say he finds one man but not one woman among them all. But what we have here is the disillusioned romantic, not the battle of the sexes. This Ecclesiastes, whether him or a persona he's adopting as he explores these ideas in a sort of literature form, this Ecclesiastes has been looking around for the love of his life. Love is all you need. That's what he's focusing on. He's looking around for the love of his life, and he's looked everywhere. He's tried all the things that people try today. He's tried the dating agencies. He's even gone online into the sort of, you know, singles chat rooms, you know, the, the normal safe kinds, of course. But he's even tried looking around church for suitable options. But there's no one, he is saying. And so what happens? Well, like many people like that who get disillusioned about romance, he finds comfort at least in being able to shoot a game of pool with the lads, you see. One man. At least I got my buddy. You'll get a similar sense of what's going on if you look also at chapter 9, verse 9. You see there, he says, and here's another instance of this, what I've called a sting in the tail style. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Oh, isn't that sweet? Until, he says, all the days of your vain life. Which is not something you'd find in a you know, February the 14th Valentine's card, is it? <laughs> and actually, something, that section there, that that, that verse introduces and is a part of, bears striking resemblance to some of the pagan poems of the ancient world. Which, you know, some scholars think, well, that's odd, but actually is really the key to understanding what he's trying to do. Love, in the sense of romantic relationships, romantic love, that kind of love, I think he's saying that cannot bear the stress that we attempted to put upon love. Love is all you need. No. Romantic love is simply not all you need. In fact, I think he's saying, if we approach it like that, if we approach like love like that, we are bound absolutely certainly to fail in love. It's an irony, but so often true. See, the problem with our society at any age has had this tendency. You can find it even here, of course. But our society, perhaps it has it in an extreme form, is to make an idol of relationships, of love, romance. 
We seem to feel today that the perfect man or woman will make us happy. I've got news for you. If you approach the romantic relationship in your life like that, unless God is very, very gracious to you, it will probably make you miserable. Now, I know the old marriage service does say, with my body I thee worship. The, the Anglican service says that. But, of course, that means treating as worthy, not worshiping as God. Only God will make you happy. If you make romance your God, chances are you will be miserable in the end. It happens to many people. In fact, it may be that the reason why we don't have a spouse if we're single, is because we're going about it the kind of wrong way that Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see. And perhaps we've got the same kind of desperation that, it, that he had, whether he or the persona he adopted, the sort of desperation that says, a thousand women. Oh, I mean, for goodness sake, one will do, you know. Uh, and maybe God is mercifully preventing us from engaging, as it were, with yet another, until we have learned to worship Him alone, you see. And what does that mean as we apply it? Well, Christian dating, therefore, is to be distinguished by being not as intense as the pseudo-marital arrangements that the world makes, that society outside church makes. What does that mean? Well, obviously, you are not to sleep with your boy or girlfriend before you get married. I trust that's, that's obvious Christian teaching. Uh, more subtly, neither are, are you to treat uh, the, the person you're dating as your husband or wife until they actually are, you, you see, or at least until you're engaged, I suppose. Um, that is, we are to avoid intensity in the relationship until it's ready to bear the load and the commitment is secure, safe, and solid. And, and in any case, even, you know, most of us here, many of us here are probably married. Even when you are married, you ought to focus on God, not on each other in that relationship. That's where you're looking. The old illustration is of a triangle, the corners of which represent each person in the marriage relationship. You see, and you only get close when you are both getting closer to God. Oftentimes, when a marriage is in trouble, you will find that they've stopped praying together. You only get close as you get closer to God. Love is all you need. <laughs> well, he's saying the kind of selfish love, you know, I'm found a woman among a thousand, the kind of selfish love. He's been considering, he's saying, well, that's actually greed. It's not worshiping God. No amount of sexual exploration discovers true love. What does it do? It just fries the end of your emotional tactility, as it were. And therefore, it makes it harder to really connect and bond with, with, with someone in a permanent way. The love that is what we need, is not romance, it's redemption. And again, that focus on God and being in fear of Him, which actually Christian marriages, of course, represent as they 
are a symbol or sign of Christ's love for the church. That's the commitment we're talking about, you see. Then they're healthy. Well, the third standard popular idea of his age uh, and of ours as well that he undermines is not so much a slogan but more a drive, a determination. And that determination is to get to the top, to climb the career ladder, perhaps at any and all costs. And that motivates some of us, doesn't it? We perhaps have the ideal of a margin-less society where everything is streamlined for improvement and success. And we want to cut out all the margins in our life so that we can get to the top. Get to the top, he asks. Is that really smart? Think again. See, if we've made love into a fair-weather friend where it is for better but not for worse... Well, it's till the judge us do part, not till death us do part. Well, then also our romance with work has similarly made career our idol. And Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see that this betrays an entirely naive view about the security of the present and the predictability of the future. So look at chapter 7, verse 14. He writes, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, in the day of prosperity... Be joyful. Well, that, you know, that's good. You could, you could find that in some kind of management seminar, no doubt. Rejoice uh, after the deal has gone well. And then here's this switch, though. Turns it on his head. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Well, what does that mean? Well, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Again, you see, it's this God who is sort of distant, deistic, as it used to be called, as theologians have called it, nominal, just naming God, but not really connecting in him, believing him, sort of up there, you know, the, the phrase that you hear sometimes, oh, the man upstairs, right? A sort of lucky charm of a God, and to whom we're mildly grateful when things go well. But what about when they don't? What about the bad things? Does that come from God too? Therefore, this view of God uh, is insufficient to discover anything about the future progress of our lives. And so if we have this under-the-sun view of God, what happens? Well, we try and curry favor with the boss. Ecclesiastes then poses as someone advising that kind of course of action to advance our careers. So look at chapter 8, verse 2, and then there following. He's advising us how to act towards the king, you see, whether literally or your boss. And basically what he's saying is what some I've heard would call kissing up, you know. Perhaps you don't say that at college church, but you know what I mean really. Uh, but then what happens, eight, chapter 8, verse 7, given the uncertainty of the future, who knows what's going to happen, you might kiss up, but the guy ahead may well kick you down. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? And if that doesn't seem clear, look at the most challenging, look at chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, which is 
Most challenging for our assumptions that hard work is always rewarded. Of course, Ecclesiastes wants people to work hard, but he doesn't want them to think that getting to the top is the be-all and end-all. So look at chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, this basic distinction he's making, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. What's he saying? Well, ultimately, under the sun, if you have a secular view of life, career success is really just a matter of timing and good fortune. Have you never asked yourself, do the best carpenters always get the best contracts? Or have you never asked yourself, do the best grades always create the wealthiest graduates? Or have you never asked yourself, are the cleverest employees always promoted? Time and chance happens to all. For, he says, man does not know his time. Again, the unpredictability of the future undermines our career confidence under the sun. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them under the sun. Now, of course, that's an especially depressing view of our life and future, isn't it? And yet, under the sun, that is with a purely secular outlook, what other conclusion could you possibly come to? Sure, the net will be drawn in. At some point, you will be trapped. You may be the, the richest guy in the graveyard, as it were. You're snared. Evil comes upon us all suddenly. Now, it used to be that in the secular West, sort of under the sun view, in the secular West, in our society, we were all rather unreasonably optimistic. Science was going to solve all of our problems. Economies were always going to boom. <laughs> Politicians were always honorable. But now, you know, since I suppose even the 1960s and on, we've had Watergate, Irangate, any other gate you could care to mention? You seem to just have to put gate after a word nowadays to get the point, you know. After the bubble burst, after Vietnam for the older generation or Three Mile Island, people do not trust the generals, they do not trust the politicians, and many people don't trust the scientists, I'm afraid. <laughs> and perhaps some of that is no doubt healthy. Science is not the answer to our dreams. Utopia in this fallen world in which we live is not around the corner, but over the horizon of this universe, the new heaven, the new earth to come. And yet... The great danger is that faced with this cynicism about improvement, whether individually or collectively, we lose our dream as a society entirely. And see, what Ecclesiastes is doing is pointing out the genuine cause and validation for such cynicism with biting turns of phrase under the sun. Such turns of phrase raise our expectations and then dash them against the hard rock of reality in a secular society. Get to the top, that's what life's about. You're fired. Clean up your desk, go home. 
In a way, he's saying, uh, we live in a, in a uh, we have no idea when the axe is going to fall. In a way, he's saying, we live in a Donald Trump world, not it's a wonderful life. And Ecclesiastes is always parodying the popular wisdom of our self-help gurus, our Dr. Phil's and our Oprah Winfrey's. He's parading the clothes of what C.S. Lewis called Mr. Sensible who has an answer to everything, apparently, but actually, foundationally, is living a fantasy, even while he thinks he's trying to attain the dream, because it's all under the sun. And so, as he removes all these props of our psychology, the support systems that emotionally protect us from looking at life and death full in the face as the reality that we all know it is, he wants us to be left with no option but to turn to God. Now all has been heard, he writes at the end, as he now is getting closer to this point in his most unusual apologetic against the secular worldview. Now the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. That's where he's going. An Oxford professor uh, used to tell a, 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 a funny story of an Oxford undergraduate who once wrote a letter to his parents. Apparently it was, it was true. You can never quite tell. But. Dear mum and dad, the letter began in traditional vein. Dear mum and dad, I know you haven't heard much from me in recent months, but the fact is this. A few weeks back there was a fire in the apartment. I lost all my possessions. You can imagine the mum and dad getting, you know, And then the letter continued, actually, I only escaped with my life by jumping out of a second floor window. You know, they're reading it over breakfast, right? In the process of doing so, I broke my leg, so I ended up in hospital. The letter continued, fortunately, I met the most wonderful nurse there. We immediately fell in love. You know, the mum is practically on the floor by now. And well, to cut a long story short, (laughs) last Saturday we were married. Many of our friends say this was over hasty. (laughs) You would think. But I am convinced that our love will more than compensate for the differences between our social backgrounds and religious faiths. (laughs) See you soon. Much love, your dear son. And, uh, you know, after they avoided the defibrillators, the letter continued. P.S. The above is all false. But what is true is that I fail my exams. <laughs> I just wanted you to get that in proper perspective. <laughs> hmm. Well... That's pretty much exactly what Ecclesiastes is doing in these chapters. You know, there's this, doesn't work. There's that, doesn't work. You're left with nothing. P.S. Life in relation to God is what it's all about. Really? And so he wants us to look at this secular life in the true perspective and so then turn to God once more in renewed devotion and commitment. 
or for the first time, perhaps. And I don't know about you, but I suspect there's no medicine more needed today. He's undermining even proverbial wisdom to make us see the difference in Rudyard Kipling's words between keeping your head and losing it. There is no wisdom without an intimate, growing, personal knowledge of the awesome God of the Bible. None! He's making us see the selfishness of our romantic idols to place that dream in the love of our Heavenly Father. And now, in the the final part, when we're overwhelmed by those corporate slogans about life, as we think perhaps of retail therapy on Good Friday, not Good Friday, Black Friday. (laughs) You know, what is it? Always low prices, always. Or of workaholism by, you know, passionate about customer care. Or food, what is it? Think outside the bun, you know. And you hear those slogans and the commercials and all that, you'll hear Ecclesiastes saying vanity. You'll see his eye twinkle with amusement at the human attempts at wisdom that made a seer's hairdryer place on its handle the helpful information do not use while sleeping. (laughs) I kid you not. Or on a children's cough medicine, do not drive a car or operate machinery after taking this medicine. (laughs) I jest not. It reminds me of the story of the carefully planned and hugely expensive advertising campaign that Pepsi-Cola used to attempt to launch their product for the first time in China. They could not work out why sales kept falling rather than rising despite all their hard work, and then somebody helpfully pointed out that their international slogan at the time, Come Alive with Pepsi, when translated, uh, you know, when it was translated into Mandarin, actually came out as, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. The best laid plans of mice and men go oft astray. (laughs) And Ecclesiastes, what's he doing? Well, he's pointing it all out with refreshing candor so that we're left with no option but to remove our ultimate trust from canny human plans and place instead that trust in the salvation plan that never goes askew because it is not of man but of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that plan. And we ask that you would help us to see life as it really is. And so live a life above the sun in committed devotion, joyful service of you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.